everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. Hey, everyone. It is Monday, July 11. Thanks for joining us as we start another week. I'm Mo Shwanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm joined, per usual, by Jill Wagner. Jill, you might say this is kind of a big week for you. Kind of. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) So I'm having my baby on Friday or potentially before if he decides to make an early appearance. How are you feeling right now? Uh, You know, it's a range of emotions. I'm excited. I can't wait to meet him. But in some ways, I have to admit, I'm a little bit sad because I'm clinging to these last moments with my daughter where she's the only child. Um, And I'm nervous, too. Having done this once, I know how hard it is. I know there's a lot of women who have babies and they just make it look easy. Mm -hmm. I was not one of those women. I feel like I almost made it look hard. I, I found especially the newborn days to be so challenging um, so a lot's going on in this head of mine. And, and I will say the podcast has been an amazing distraction. Well, it's, it's been great to launch. I know we were, t- when we were talking about launching this in June and we we're like, how much time are we going to have to do this? And we're like, we got to get it going. We got to get it going. We got to get this thing going. So, yeah. And you know, I feel like we finally got into a little bit of a groove, so it's bittersweet. Yeah. You know, I'm so excited to have the baby and, and all of that, but I am sad to, to be at least putting this on hiatus for a bit. Yes. Well, the podcast will be continuing. We will we will try our best without you. Um, and then we can't wait for your return whenever you're ready. <laughs> Thank you, Mosh. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Take your time. Take your time, Jill. All right. Let's get to the news. Here is what we're following today. Twitter, deal or no deal, Elon Musk wants out. Twitter says, I don't think so. Why some parents are suing TikTok. Lots of international news today from Japan to Sri Lanka to the Middle East and why sharks off the coast of Long Island, not all bad news. (laughs) There's your deep tease, your deep tease, folks. (laughs) All right, let's start with the Twitter deal or no deal. Elon Musk wants out of that $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. Twitter saying not so fast. The company just hired a law firm as it prepares to sue Musk for terminating the deal. That's according to Bloomberg. So you'll remember back in April, Tesla, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter for $44 billion 
At the time, Musk said his goal was to increase the social media giant's trustworthiness, promote more free speech on the platform, and take the company private. Conservatives mostly cheered the deal. Twitter employees have been meh on it. Uh, the board accepted Musk's offer. That's an official term, Mosh, actually. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, depending <laughs> on who you're reading, some have been more than meh. Some were like crying when the headline first crossed. Um, but the board, needless to say, accepted Musk's offer, mostly because there were no other takers. And he was paying a premium for the company. Musk offered to buy Twitter for $54.20 a share. On Friday, it closed at $36.81 a share. So there's a lot more than meets the eye here. What's what's really going on, Mosh? Well, there's only one person who can answer that question, Jill, and that's Elon. But this is what we know. You mentioned the share price drop. So the company effectively there, the translation there, folks, is that the company has lost a third of its value from what he offered to pay. So basically, you could look at his $44 billion price and say he's probably paying 10 to $12 billion more than its current value. The last three months has been a total roller coaster of ups and downs. Uh, Musk started to claim over the course of the past couple of months that Twitter is dramatically underreporting the real number of fake accounts or bots that exist on the account. Twitter claims that less than 5% of its users are bots. Musk thinks it's closer to 20%. This has led to a war of words. I mean, there's people from the beginning here that like Musk is not serious. Musk is not actually going to do this. It's really expensive for him, even for a guy worth more than $200 billion. Ultimately, $44 billion price tag is a is a lot of money. And so it all comes to a head on Friday. If you saw the headlines cross, probably just after 5 p.m. on Friday, uh, he called off the deal. Musk had already said he had frozen the deal. He said that it's because of Twitter's false and misleading uh, information during the negotiations. Again, this is something he's been building up over time. But as we know, he was looking for many excuses to get out of this deal. It appeared over the course of the past couple of months. Um, since he first made the offer, the, the stock plunged. Um, though he did look like he was serious. Remember, he sold a bunch of his Tesla stock, about $10 billion worth as he secured funding earlier in the spring. Something to keep in mind as the market has dropped, though. His net worth, Elon's net worth, has dropped $65 billion since he announced he bought Twitter. Wow. Uh, the question, though, is can he actually get out of this deal? And the jury's still out. He signed this legally binding SEC agreement to buy the company or pay a $1 billion breakup fee if that agreement falls apart. But it isn't that simple. So according to CNBC, a reverse breakup fee paid from a buyer to a target applies when there is an outside reason that a deal can't close. And usually that would be like a regulatory issue or a third-party financing concern, not necessarily what he's claiming here, which is that they weren't upfront about the number of bots. Yeah, I mean, Musk is testing a concept here in court uh, that says that a buyer must show that a company's actual business differs dramatically from what he agreed to buy. Basically, that Twitter is not uh, what it was or what he thought it was. What outside analysts are saying is like, that would be something that would translate into like Twitter being half the value that it promised to be. Again, Twitter here is saying, we've given Elon a lot of information. And this is going to go to a special court in Delaware called the Court of Chancery. And by the way, this court, uh, there's a version of it that existed in the UK going back hundreds of years. This is a special court that handles disputes like this. What's wild here is that the Twitter chairman of the board tweeted over the weekend, as one does when you work at Twitter, you communicate via tweet. <laughs> he tweets um, that they're going to hold Elon to the deal and they're going to make him buy them, uh, which is weird because you're kind of like, Elon doesn't want you anymore, but Twitter knows no one else is going to give them 
the deal that Elon did. So they're testing this concept. Um, Musk, by the way, hasn't proven because he doesn't have proof that like this bot concept of his, this alternate calculation. And so he doesn't have like an alternate assertion here. And so, you know, Musk has reason to believe, according to his lawyer, that the true number of spam accounts is substantially higher, whatever that means. I was reading a good Wall Street Journal analysis over the weekend that says that this sort of pullout has not been tested at the scale before at a $44 billion deal. And even if the court says, you know, Elon, you don't have enough proof here, you must buy the company. It's not like the court of chancery in Delaware has like the court of chancery police that's going to make Elon buy it. So ultimately, who's going to enforce this, even if the court rules against Elon? Scott Galloway, who you know I quote all the time, yes. he's the host of, of the Pivot podcast, which is one of my favorites, besides, of course, the Mo News podcast. He's been on point about this from the beginning. He thought this deal was never going to go through, but he thinks that this is going to be very, very expensive for Elon Musk to get out of. Yeah. I mean, he already has the $1 billion kill fee. You can imagine that he's going to have to pay a certain amount of money uh, for this to end, even if it takes several years. Uh, that this whole you know concept he had, you know, it's so crazy when you look at some of the quotes, and I posted some of these on Instagram over the weekend about why Elon was saying he was buying Twitter. It was like to change humanity and like help everybody, <laughs> right. and like you know, this very high-minded concepts. So it's like great, okay. Well, after a couple months, he's like, well, you got too many bots, so forget it. And they're like, no, man, we got you. The deal is a good deal for us. So no matter what Twitter gains out of this, remember Twitter, by the way in kind of comparison to other social media companies is very small, like Facebook uh, and uh, TikTok. It, you're talking about multi-hundred billion dollar companies. Um, and by comparison, you know, Twitter is really small and has had trouble with growth for many, many years. And so there were certain ideas that Elon had that sounded interesting to some folks, the people who weren't crying when he took it over at Twitter. And so it'll be very interesting no matter what, even if Twitter gets a couple billion out of Elon for this whole thing, what is their long-term game plan? They still don't seem to have one. Let's move on, though, and talk a little bit about the overall economy. So we've been talking a while about whether the U.S. is in a recession or headed to a recession. If we are, it is a strange one because yeah. job growth continues to be really strong. The U.S. economy added 372,000 new jobs in June. That is way more than expected. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%. That's for the fourth straight month. No surprise, pay increases, not keeping up with inflation. On Wednesday, though, we're going to get some more data on inflation. Most economists think it has not cooled off just yet. Some areas, though, are finally slowing down, though, right? Yeah, that, that's what we believe. It's, it's a big week, Jill, because as you mentioned, we'll get the inflation numbers on Wednesday. That'll show us June 2022 inflation over June 2021 inflation. Um, the estimates out there, and again, these are just economists, and estimates is that it'll show a 9% inflation rate for June, especially since oil got so high and oil does have an impact, impact on inflation. We'll also, by the way, Friday at the end of the week, uh, learn consumer sentiment um, for July. That's consumer expectations about future inflation. That's an important number the Fed takes a look at, especially as they determine how much more to increase interest rates to slow down the economy. We'll also get retail sales on Friday showing how much the average American consumer is spending in the stores. Um, and so I mentioned oil because that's going to be a key thing for the inflation rate. It has actually come down since June. In the past couple of weeks, uh, gas prices are finally falling. And so 
if you extrapolate this out, maybe when we get the August report on July inflation, it'll finally show a cooling because the national average of gasoline is now down to just over $4.60. That's down from $5 last month. Uh, used cars, we're also seeing those numbers decrease. And so um, there are a few factors here that we can start to take a look at that we knew were playing into an uh, effect here on inflation that even if this number on Wednesday shows sort of a 9% number, we the economists believe that we're sort of peaking on inflation right now. And I do want to mention inflation is a global phenomenon. G20 leaders are meeting in Bali on Friday with one of the biggest topics on hand being inflation. And central banks like our Fed around the world are raising rates to try to deal with it. Okay, staying overseas, two days after Japan's former prime minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated while campaigning for his liberal democratic party, Voters there headed to the polls and overwhelmingly elected his allies and reaffirmed his party's vision for the future. So they now have enough seats to amend this clause in their constitution, which was actually imposed by Americans after World War II, that renounces war. So essentially, this would now allow Japan to become a military power. Again, Japan's former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, shot and killed in broad daylight Friday as he was giving a campaign speech. He was 67 years old, rushed to the hospital. He was pronounced dead just hours later. Mosh, what have we learned about the assassination? Yeah, this was the headline that many of us woke up to here in the U.S. Friday morning U.S. time, which is pretty remarkable in a, in a country that... Um, has so little of this. It really shocked shocked the country. So they actually arrested the guy on site, a 41-year-old man named Tetsuya Yamagami. Um, they've arrested him and uh, charging him with attempted murder. He confessed that he had intent to kill the former prime minister. He used a homemade gun. Apparently, he was spending a lot of time, because it's actually so difficult to get a gun in Japan, making this handmade gun. Um, and he was following Abe around for a few days. This is the motive as far as uh, Japanese media is reporting, that he believes uh, the prime minister has something to do with his family falling apart. His mother was obsessed with a religious group that he feels Abe promoted. He, they haven't named the group yet. And we're still waiting on details there, but basically that his mom's obsession led to her bankruptcy and so that that made the family fall apart. And so this guy basically decided, he initially thought about killing the religious leader and then decided I'm gonna kill Abe. Uh, out of resentment for tearing apart my family. Uh, the top law enforcement official in the city of Nara, where the former prime minister was assassinated, has acknowledged security lapses at the political rally and has pledged to identify and resolve those in the future. I found that to be something that, that also differs so much from the United States, where you have officials who are actually taking responsibility for what happened and promising to make changes. I feel like here, everybody just kind of blames somebody else. It, we, we would go through a whole period of finger pointing, finger pointing, silence, uh, lawyer, lawyering up, uh, congressional investigations. I mean, Jill, we had assassinations here in the 60s, right? We had Warren Commission. I mean, we went decades and multiple investigations, and there's still conspiracy theories as to who done it and uh, who was at fault when it came to the Kennedy assassinations of both JFK, RFK, and, and Martin Luther King. Well, we have, most all seen that Seinfeld episode where there was potentially a second spitter. Uh, but I will I will leave that it's, reference It's one there. of the classics, Joe. <laughs> one of the reasons that this was so incredibly shocking is that Japan has some of the toughest gun restrictions in the world, and, and shootings there are extremely rare. 
Homicide rates in Japan among the lowest in the world. The suspect was, as you mentioned, all but forced to make his own gun. And that's because obtaining a firearm in Japan is just that difficult. A stark contrast, of course, to here in the United States, where you can actually just be a gun owner in less than an hour. Yeah, you know, so it's it's just a, quite a different situation. Yeah, Jill, Japan typically has only between five and ten gun-related homicides a year. And this Japan, by the way, is a country of 125 million people. So it's about a third the size of the U.S., so the U.S. three times the size of Japan. But as opposed to five to ten a year, we have about 40,000 people who die every year of gun deaths, just to give you that contrast and that perspective there. So there is belief that because it's such a safe society and they see so little in the way of gun violence, that might have led to sort of the lax security around the former prime minister. And apparently also he had decided to make that campaign stop last minute. So that was another thing where apparently the security and the police just didn't have that much time to prepare for it. Mosh, let's talk a little bit about Shinzo Abe. What is his legacy? So he's the longest running prime minister um, in Japan. He served most recently for, for eight years from 2012 to 2020, had a very strong relationship with several U.S. presidents. In 2015, he became the first Japanese leader to address a joint session of Congress here in Washington. Uh, he hosted President Obama at Hiroshima, the site of the 1945 atomic bombing. And he actually developed a very close relationship with President Trump, both on and off the golf course. They golfed together. Trump put out a statement honoring him. By the way, Jill, you noted this at the beginning of the conversation, but I just wanted to make note of it, that they're looking to make a, a change to their constitution. So Japan has a pacifist post-war constitution. This came out of, of course, uh, World War II and U.S. basically saying that like after everything that... Um, you did in World War II, you have to become a pacifist country, and we will essentially defend you against any sort of outside interests. But looking around the neighborhood in recent decades, between North Korea developing their nuclear program and threatening them, you know, a lot of times Kim Jong-un will lob missiles basically over Japan. And of course, China's growing military threat, the Japanese increasingly have said, yes, that might have been right for 1945. But at this point, we trust ourselves and we need to basically dispense with this pacifist constitution and start to develop military power again. Josh Rogan, who's um, has a, a column in the Washington Post and who covers China, he wrote a piece actually saying Abe's legacy is a world better prepared to confront China. One of the things that he wrote, he said, Abe reoriented Japan's foreign policy to focus on long-term competition with China when U.S. and other world leaders were still clinging to an engagement-based approach with Beijing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a feeling in the region that the U.S. keeps getting distracted by issues in the Middle East, etc. They're not taking China seriously enough, that we are ties to economically to China are so close that we'll never deal with them or confront them in a way that the regional folks uh, feel that we should. And by the way, you know, next month marks a year since our pullout from Afghanistan. And that really reinforced to a lot of countries around the world that the U.S., you know, is now more than nearly 80 years since World War II kind of being the global police officer and defending interests, that they might not have the power or, frankly, the energy or the desire anymore to go about defending everybody. And so the Japanese are among those who are like, I guess we got to take things into our own hands. One more story in the region that caught our attention, chaos in Sri Lanka. Sri Lankan President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, as well as his handpicked prime minister, have both agreed to resign after tens of thousands of demonstrators stormed the president's residence to protest a crippling economic crisis. Sri Lanka is an island nation of about 22 million. It's located just off the coast of India. 
Their economy has completely collapsed, and there's a whole host of factors, including mismanagement by Rajapaksa and his family, who have effectively controlled the country for nearly 20 years. Most the images of the crowds breaking into the presidential palace were remarkable. I, I You posted a bunch of them on Instagram. What's happening there? Yeah, I, I've gotten notes from uh, either Sri Lankans who live here in the U.S. and people there for the past couple of months that things were getting pretty, pretty desperate. Uh, they have what's believed to be the second highest inflation rate in the world in like the hundreds of, we're talking about 9% inflation. They're talking about like more than 100% inflation in terms of price increases. So many of us woke up Saturday morning to protesters in the city of Colombo barging through police barricades, storming the president's residence. You might've seen the images of people jumping in his pool and swimming in his pool and like lounging on his furniture. Separately, it, it was old- wild. It was. I, I'm like, <laughs> is that a resort? Where is that? And then I'm like, oh my god, those are protesters that uh, broke into the presidential palace. Oh it's my also, god. Uh, some people were saying to me, no, it's like this feels like January 6th with these images of storming, you know, the president's house or the parliament. But like, it's like this is like a thousand times larger and like actually legitimate concerns. The country's right. essentially gone bankrupt. Uh, essential imports of fuel, food, medicine have been cut in recent months. People have been forced to burn furniture for firewood. The shortages pushed the island into the worst financial situation in 70 years. And by the way, you mentioned the president uh, who's agreed to resign, the uh, Rajapaksas. They've essentially run the country into the ground. There's nine siblings, uh, and they've basically been just rearranging themselves in the government. Like one brother is running this ministry, and then the other brother appoints the other one prime minister. And they've been spending way too much debt. They took a bunch of loans from China that China's like, you got to repay those. And they're like, we don't have that money. They've produced and built a bunch of vanity projects. On top of that, they were then cutting taxes. So they're spending all the money, cutting the taxes, so there's no money left. Then there's mismanagement of agriculture and farming. Add to that COVID, shutting down tourism for two years. And then on top of that, the war in Ukraine, which has cut uh, wheat exports. Remember how much wheat comes from Ukraine. It's jacked up fuel and food costs. So it's it's essentially here a nightmare. And one thing struck me. The prime minister, who essentially was appointed in May, who basically had six weeks to sort of fix things after the president had to like basically get rid of his brother, who he had made prime minister. The most recent prime minister is basically like, guys, we're not alone. Like, you should look at other countries around the world who are also being impacted by the war in Ukraine and what it's done to food prices and uh, fuel prices in the past couple of months. And one more story we want to get on the record with. Uh, Some parents are suing TikTok after two young girls aged eight and nine died while trying a viral TikTok challenge called the Blackout Challenge. Their parents are blaming the platform's, quote, dangerous algorithms for the choking deaths. So basically, these videos encourage users to choke themselves until they pass out. The parents are being represented by the Social Media Victims Law Center, and they allege that TikTok's, quote, dangerous algorithm intentionally and repeatedly pushed videos of this challenge onto children's feeds. It is horrific, but the question is, you know, do they have a case? We've been asking of social media platforms for years, are these companies responsible for the content that's on the platform? Yeah, Jill, the big debate in recent years has been uh, from the platforms, you know, pointing to the users being like, it's all the users. It's not our responsibility. But we're, what responsibility do platforms like TikTok, Facebook, et cetera, have for the content that appears and the ramifications of that content? So apparently this challenge existed pre-TikTok. And like many things TikTok is sort of bringing back, it brought back this challenge, made the rounds again. 
And it's not the only thing, uh, Jill, that TikTok's been under fire for. Apparently, there was a milk crate challenge that encouraged users to stack and climb milk crates that got a lot of people seriously hurt, even spinal cord injuries. There was a Benadryl challenge, which encouraged folks to take a large amount of antihistamines to produce hallucinogenic effects. Uh, that led to a 15-year-old girl dying. And then there was the Skull Breaker challenge. I don't even want to know what the Skull Breaker challenge is, no. but uh, it caused one victim to have a seizure. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that these challenges existed prior. I, when I was a reporter in Lansing, Michigan, it, that was circa 2007, 2008, I actually covered this terrible, terrible story where a boy uh, killed himself unintentionally by doing one of these choking challenges. Um, but I guess the question here is, as you mentioned, it's the algorithm, right? It, we we know that the way that the laws are written is that these social media platforms are not responsible for the content that's on them, but are they and should they be responsible for promoting that content? That's, I and, think, the and, question. Yeah, and how much transparency are we going to get in terms of the algorithm itself? You know, this is the secret sauce when it comes to these social media companies. In fact, there's a lot of companies, including the folks over in Menlo Park at Facebook and Instagram, who are very curious and jealous of the TikTok algorithm because of how quickly and adeptly, it's able to give you the content that it believes you will like. Um, so through this trial, how much will we learn about that, how their algorithm works? And then at the end of the day, what responsibility lies on them? And then whether any states or the federal government decides to change any laws based on some of these things. Time now for the speed read. This from CNN. Steve Bannon says he's willing to testify before January 6th committee after Trump waves claims of executive privilege. Steve Bannon told the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection that he is now willing to testify, ideally at a public hearing, according to a letter obtained by CNN. His reversal comes after he received a letter from former President Trump waiving executive privilege. So, Moshe, I feel like I'm a broken record here, but I'll ask the question I always ask. How big of a deal is this? Jill, and I'll give my normal response. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even need to listen to every podcast that we do. Just go back. It's basically the same conversation. <laughs> so what's interesting here is you need to remember that Steve Bannon, despite the difficult history he has with Donald Trump, is a loyalist. Um, and that's despite the fact that Trump fired him at one point and thought he was taking too much credit for his victory. But Steve Bannon, in recent years especially, is a loyalist to Trump. So a lot of this depends on how forthcoming he is and what exactly he says. So the backstory here is Steve was one of the people who was fighting uh, the subpoena, and he was facing contempt charges. And he had promised to turn the case against him into, quote, a misdemeanor from hell for the Justice Department. But he was facing two years in prison, large fines. And so I think clearly he had a conversation with the former president. Trump has authorized him to speak. Uh, the New York Times is reporting that Trump has been frustrated in recent weeks that there's not enough people defending him to January 6th. You know, he's like this... This committee is, you know, is a bunch of garbage and a bunch of political hacks, but he's obsessing over it, as he does, and watching it and wondering why won't people defend him. So it feels like here, Jill, he's sort of authorizing Bannon to speak on his behalf. Um, and so having one of his fiercest defenders speak for the January 6th, who knows what we'll hear, but I think we'd sort of know what we're going to hear. The, other, the thing I'm looking at this week is there's two big hearings, Tuesday and Thursday. Thursday actually could be another primetime hearing that uh, they're looking to, you know, have where more people can watch. And one thing we should look out for this week is uh, leaks or revelations as to what P Pat Cipollone said in his testimony 
closed door on Friday. Some of the committee members said we'll start to learn uh, what things, and remember Cipollone's, uh, Trump's former lawyer, who was in the Oval Office at key moments, often telling the former president that things he was considering were illegal, that we might start to hear what Cipollone said on Friday. All right, from ABC News, former Governor Bill Richardson to travel to Moscow for talks on freeing Brittany Griner, according to a source. So again, former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson planning to travel to Russia in the near future, sometime perhaps in the next couple of weeks, for talks aimed at finding a deal to free the detained WNBA star. And again, that is according to a source that has knowledge of the proposed trip telling ABC News. Richardson himself not confirming this at all, just saying no comment. Yeah, it sounds par for the course here. Richardson, so he's a former energy secretary, formerly was governor of New Mexico. He dabbled with running for president in 2008. Uh, one of his big things in recent years in regards to things in Russia, North Korea, et cetera, has been freeing American detainees. He actually did one recently in April uh, that saw the release of former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed, who was two and a half years behind bars in Russia. So he was asked about this late last week, especially in light of Griner pleading guilty. He said, quote, we believe that any prisoner in a situation like this needs to do what they believe can help them survive this ordeal. So he's working on Griner, WNBA player, as well as Paul Whelan, who's a former Marine arrested back in 2018 in Russia on espionage charges. The Russian courts sentenced them to 16 years in prison. U.S. officials have said that that was completely unfair. So it appears, and you know, of course he's going to deny it initially, that Greiner and Whelan are part of the negotiations here. And remember, the Russians likely in the situation will be looking for us, the U.S., to be freeing some of their uh, folks who are uh, behind bars here in the U.S. From the New York Times, Biden will find a changed Middle East on his coming visit. So President Biden is heading to the Middle East this week. It's his first visit as the American head of state. The New York Times writes, he will find a region where alliances, priorities, and relations with the U.S. have shifted significantly since his last official trip six years ago. His visit opens in Israel and the West Bank. It's expected to focus on Israel's fast-strengthening ties with Arab countries and an emerging Arab-Israeli military partnership to combat threats from Iran. And he ends the trip in Saudi Arabia, the Persian Gulf state that the West wants to pump out more oil as a solve to a growing global energy crisis set off by the war in Ukraine. Yeah, the president has a uh, rare op-ed piece in the Washington Post this weekend where he lays out what he's planning to do with his big Middle East trip. Uh, he says, you know, next week I'll travel there to start a new and more promising chapter of America's engagement in the Middle East. Remember, we've been involved there for actually, if you go really far back, the uh, beginning of the Marines uh, during Thomas Jefferson's presidency came dealing with pirates off the coast of North Africa. So we go back to the I don't know how you know that, but <laughs> <laughs> um, very <because> interesting. <laughs> the, the official Marine song talks about the shores of Tripoli. Um, so, um, and I won't sing it here, but basically going do back it, to the, do it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> going back to the foundation of this country, we've had some deal um, and you know dealings with that region. So this is just the latest, and you know as you noted, things have shifted since the time he was vice president, especially when it comes to the Israeli-Arab relations. Effectively, after decades and decades of being a state of war. A bunch of the Arab countries, especially because the Arab countries, several of them, and Israel share a common enemy, Iran. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, they've been getting closer and closer together. And that, by the way, has to do during the Trump administration 
he helped uh, solidify some of these agreements between uh, UAE uh, and Israel and several other countries. And the Saudis have opened up ties with the Israelis as well. The big controversy, of course, when it comes to this trip, especially in light of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, he was the uh, Washington Post reporter who was effectively killed and dismembered in a Saudi uh, diplomatic establishment in Turkey. And they've drawn a direct line to the leader of Saudi Arabia, the crown prince. Uh, Biden's effectively explaining, like, listen, I know there are people who disagree with this. My views on human rights are clear and longstanding. Uh, and I've made clear how I feel about, you know, the Saudis basically murdering this journalist. But at the same time, this is not Biden's word. These are analysis. Uh, we need them for high gas prices. We need them to deal with Iran. And so it appears the U.S. is going to look beyond the whole Khashoggi situation and look sort of macro. And, you know, Biden's going to have a share of criticism for that. From Politico, Biden signs abortion rights executive order amid pressure. Facing mounting pressure to be more forceful, President Biden signed an executive order Friday to protect some abortion rights, but acknowledged Congress has the ultimate power. His order aims at protecting access to medical abortions and launching public education efforts, among other things. But abortion rights protesters still gathered outside the White House Saturday, calling on President Biden to do more. Yeah, it sounds like they're going to be there for a while, you know, calling him to do a national emergency or do more. I mean, we've talked about this for a couple of weeks now, Jill. The president's powers are limited here. His announcement on Friday essentially confirmed things that were already in process. And if you read the executive order, there's words like consider. The order will also instruct the administration to consider additional actions. They will consider strengthening protections for doctors performing abortions. There's only so much that can be done as far as Biden is concerned. Uh, there's been pushback within some folks in the administration saying, I don't know how much of you guys want us to do on the, uh, on the far left, but like we're doing as much as we believe we can. Remember, the Supreme Court here, with their ruling overturning Roe, kicked it to the states, kicked it to the you know Congress, essentially. And so ultimately, if folks are not happy with the abortion laws in their state or are concerned about abortion bans being enacted, Biden's word to them is you need to vote. You need to vote more pro-choice people in. Um, and he stressed that as part of his talks on Friday that you know Democrats need two more pro-choice senators, a pro-choice House if you want us to codify Roe because of the whole uh, filibuster situation. They need more pro-choice Democrats and that your vote makes that a reality. That's what he was saying. And there's a bunch of swing states, Jill, we've talked about North Carolina, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Virginia, Florida, where ultimately the state legislature there, whoever has the majority and whoever has the governor's house in November uh, will dictate what abortion law is in many of those states. One of the things that I've been wondering about is given the fact that we have seen in the past couple of years, this massive exodus from places like New York and California to some of these states that you just mentioned, specifically Florida, Texas, Arizona, even North Carolina. I wonder what the thinking is of, of a, a lot of those people who just moved. In theory, many of them may be a bit more liberal than the rest of, of the state. Are they thinking just they're going to vote or do they want to move? Are we going to see people saying this isn't for me and moving back? I don't know. I just wonder if there's going to be any real change that we're going to see from from a lot of kind of these cultural and social issues. I, I mean, I got to be honest with you, I'm a little skeptical that somebody who made the huge decision to move their family there, especially when it comes to things like state income taxes, uh, property taxes, weather, etc. You know, even if they oppose, you know, the state's abortion policy, whether that's enough of a enough of a deal breaker, if you will, to have them move back to their previous states. I'm sure we'll see a handful of examples, but I don't know that we'll 
see some any sort of exodus. I, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? I don't think so either. Um, and I think that it's part of, of what when we talk about what do people actually vote on, they vote on economic issues. And you just mentioned yep. taxes. And it's like, in some ways, if, if they want to go somewhere where there's not really you know, where the tax rate is lower, that's going to be more important for them than maybe a social issue like abortion rights or voting rights. And and keep in mind, some of those people who moved, uh, a lot of them are people of means, right? So like for them, the abortion ruling doesn't impact them because they, if they had the means to move and they went there for tax reasons, et cetera, ultimately taking a flight to a, a, you know, a pro-choice state um, where there's no restrictions probably doesn't seem as difficult. From NBC Chicago, suburban parents plan rally in the wake of Highland Park parade shooting. In the wake of that parade shooting, the newly formed group March 4th planned to travel to the nation's capital on Wednesday. They'll be rallying for gun reform. One of the organizers says, we just want one thing. We want to ban assault weapons. Moshe, I saw you posted a bunch this weekend about the assault weapons ban on the federal level. We had one. It expired. Is there any scenario in which the federal government reinstates it? Very, very unlikely. I think that, so we have the assault weapons ban from 1994 to 2004, and it was pretty unanimous in 94. There was a feeling that um, crime, you're still coming off the major crime waves of the 80s, early 90s, Republicans and Democrats uh, got together and banned assault weapons. It's unclear who put in the provision that allowed it to, uh, the, the word is sunset after 10 years. Um, nobody seems to remember who put that in in 94, but ultimately there was a sunset provision and the assault weapons ban went away in 04. Now, if you look at where we were in 04, Republicans had Congress, George W. Bush was president. Though George W. Bush was saying at the time, I'll re-sign the assault weapons ban. You just have to send it to my desk. Congress didn't do it. Democrats in particular were not aggressive and a, no- a number of them have regrets now uh, because they could have made the push, but there was a feeling back then that pushing gun laws would mean for losses for Democrats. So Democrats did not push hard to try to overcome the Republican majorities to give George W. Bush an extension. Now, in the past, now what are we talking about? 18 years since it expired? You're talking about tens of millions of assault weapons. We're talking about the semi-automatic rifles, et cetera, have been sold. They're way out there. So how do you deal with a ban when there's, you know, tens of millions of those types of guns already out there? So you know, I've heard from folks on the North Shore. I'm from the, you know, North Shore. Highland Park is very close to where I lived. I grew up in the in Highland Park going there often. And I know people are pushing for it. I think they should also be looking for action on the state level in Springfield, where the governor, Pritzker, is looking for uh, to do some more reforms. On a federal level, though, you know, I think Democrats will talk about it. But how do you put that genie back in the bottle? It's it's going to be interesting. From Fox News, Wimbledon 2022, Novak Djokovic tops Nick Kyrgios for seventh title. That's right. Novak Djokovic took home Wimbledon's men's singles title in an enthralling four-set victory over Nick Kyrgios. It's his fourth Wimbledon championship win in a row. It's his seventh overall. And he's now just one away from meeting Roger Federer's record of the most Wimbledon wins of all time. Yeah, and uh, obviously it wasn't the final many were expecting. Remember, Rafael Nadal pulled out late last week because of his injury. So now uh, Djokovic has 21 major titles. Um, He's just behind Nadal. 
But remember, there's one more uh, major part of the Grand Slam. That's the U.S. Open coming up next month in New York. Um, and you will not be seeing Djokovic there. He is not vaccinated. He says he's not planning on getting vaccinated. And so he is not eligible to partake in the U.S. Open. By the way, Jill, on Saturday, uh, Elena Rybakina was crowned the women's single champion. She got her first Grand Slam title. Uh, it was uh, basically a battle between two first-timers. Interestingly, on Rybakina, she is born in Russia, but she plays for Kazakhstan. She actually made the decision a few years ago, but it turns out to be pretty prescient because Russian players were banned this year from uh, Wimbledon due to the war in Ukraine, but she was officially playing under the Kazakh flag, and so she was good to go. And a picture going viral, Prince George made his Wimbledon debut and even got his hands on the legendary trophy. Kate and William produced three really, really cute kids, I got to say. Uh, yeah, and and entertaining to watch in all these uh, sort of <laughs> yes. these public functions. Who was it, Louis, recently with like his like facial expressions on the... Uh, on the balcony recently? He reminded me of Giuliani's son. Do you remember Giuliani's yeah. son went from that press conference? That's kind of what it reminded I, me of. I do mainly because of the SNL sketches where Chris Farley played Andrew <laughs> yeah. Giuliani. Um, by the way, fast forward, these kids grow up fast. George is growing fast. Andrew Giuliani grew up fast. He ran for governor. Uh, some people might have been watching the past couple of months. He ran for governor of New York. So from being mocked as a child by Chris Farley... All these years later, he ran for governor. He he failed on the uh, Republican side, though. Yeah, time. he he lost the Republican primary, I think, to Lee Zeldin. Yeah. All right, let's do some Good Mood Monday. Moshe, I've got this kind of good news, bad news story. So Long Island, bad news, has experienced three <laughs> shark attacks in the past week, okay? Yeah. Compare that to an average of about one shark attack every 10 years for a century. This is all according to Newsday. So why are we possibly filing this under good news? And that is because one of the big reasons for the increase is that conservation efforts have helped clean up the local waters, drawing more sharks and allowing those that are here to thrive, according to an expert who spoke to Newsday. However, on the bad side, the warming of the oceans has drawn sharks to northern locations. So we are seeing, unfortunately, the effects of climate change as well. But if you're into wildlife and nature, one expert saying there are a lot more sharks than 10 or 15 years ago. We're spotting sharks, whales, and dolphins here. In the 1960s, that was not the case. We did not have sharks, whales, or dolphins. Yeah, there's a story similar to this about dolphins in the East River, which, by the way, is like notorious for like being one of the more disgusting bodies of water <laughs> around New York City. And now we have dolphins there. So... Um, yeah, I guess the good news part of this is that the water's gotten much cleaner. We've cleaned up pollution. I'm not sure that surfers and other folks, you know, going on beaches this summer in New Jersey and New York would call this good news. But I just want to put things in the context because we'll often hear about shark attacks, right, Jill? Um, so this is a way to read the headlines and kind of dive into the news. So there was a 42% increase on, of unprovoked shark bites in 2021, 42% increase from the previous year. But what that increased, 42% sounds like a lot, right? We went from 33 incidents to 47 incidents. So there was your percent increase. So it's always important when you see one of those percentage headlines to try to get to the numbers behind it. It's, um, it's good that you say that. I remember hearing that Yiddish was once the fastest growing language in the United States. And it was like 
two people were learning it in college uh, up to four. And it was like, right. it's doubled. <laughs> so, yeah, I, so we hear about these incidents, but think about the tens of millions of people in the water um, on, you know, the Eastern seaboard every year. Um, and, and of course the Pacific coast and to have like 47 shark bites out of all of that, it's still pretty rare. People do need to be cautious, especially as like the water gets clean. So, um, you know, I will say, I, I hear you on, on this good news story, Jill, but we have another piece of good news today. Tell us, tell me everything. It's 7-Eleven day, which means free Slurpees at a 7-Eleven near you. I mean, I don't even want to lay this on you. It's so late in the podcast. I don't think I've ever had a Slurpee. I've never had soda, and I don't think I've ne- I don't think I've ever had a Slurpee. These are iconic. I'm. <laughs> we need to do a separate episode when you're ready to talk about your childhood, and I need to bring in your parents. The and joke. We find out what happened. The joke amongst uh, some of my friends, and and especially my old producer, actually at CBS News, she used to call me a bunker baby. Because she's like, what was your childhood? Because every once in a while, I would tell her one of these things like, oh, I've never done that. I've never been there. And she's like, how did you grow up? You do appear to be normal. I've met your parents. They seem very nice. So yeah, we could we could do a whole episode even, on that. Even Jill as a journalist, I feel like just to understand people <laughs> that you're covering, there are certain things that we need to ensure you try at some point. And a Slurpee is one of them. Mind you, it's all sugar and ice, but at the same time, you know, I don't know. I, th- I feel like I have memories from my childhood where like riding my bike with my brother and friends or whatever to 7-Eleven to get Slurpees was like a important part of my childhood. And I have covered 7-Eleven Day and Free Slurpee Day as a consumer reporter for years. Uh, so perhaps you're right. Like, did, did no part of you ever be like, I should take a sip? No, I guess because I've, I don't like soda. I, I guess like I never experienced kind of going somewhere and... and you know, what, what are they, the fountain sodas? I've never ha- kind of had What about like that. a snow cone? A snow cone? I've had a snow cone, I think. I yeah. Mean, it's sort of slurpy-ish. I'll give you partial points. <laughs> <laughs> we unfortunately, Moshe, on that very strange news about <laughs> yours truly, we do have to say goodbye. And for me, it might be goodbye for uh, a few weeks here. But thank you, everybody, for listening. We l- would love your feedback, as always, on how we're doing, what we're covering. Send us an email, podcast at mo.news. Also, subscribe to our newsletter, monews.bulletin.com, and follow us on Instagram at Moshe, M-O-S-H-E-H. Jill, we'll try to make you proud. We'll continue to be putting out interviews uh, and um, editions of this podcast in the coming weeks. Um, Again, please take your time. Um, What you're doing uh, at home is much more important than this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell folks, please follow us, subscribe to us on the podcast app you're listening to us on. Uh, Leave us a review as well. If you like Uh, us. It, only, only the good like ones. <laughs> only we want to keep the five star going. We only want the positive reviews. Um, if people uh, didn't see, we put an extra edition up over the weekend. Uh, my conversation with Rebecca Jarvis and all things Theranos. So I'm trying to drop stuff um, as we go, as we do interviews. We got some exciting interviews coming up in the coming weeks. And um, again, Jill, take your time, but we're. Uh, <laughs> We will greatly be awaiting your return at some point this fall. <laughs> thank you, Mosh. It has been so fun. Um, and thanks, everyone, for just the warm welcome into the po- back into the podcasting space. It's been great the past few weeks. All right. Enjoy 7-Eleven Day, folks. Especially <laughs> those of you who have tried Slurpees and enjoy them. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>